So, Daniel, have you heard the news about Meghan and Harry? Oh, my God. Okay, this was your opening banter. Um, it's, it's, it's which terrible. news is this? Well, we've actually, I think, started a debate about republicanism in the UK. We were weeks ahead of this on the pin factory. And now everyone else is finally caught up. That's amazing. A podcast can really change the world. Before, no one was interested in republicanism, and now it's... Uh... It's a huge thing. Although I notice in, in the US, I don't know if you find this, Michael, but there seems to be like a lot of support for, for Harry and Meghan. Is this something you followed or are you a sane, rational human being with no interest in the British monarchy? <laughs> I do have an interest in the British monarchy and so do many oh. Americans. We do watch The Crown after all, the noted <laughs> Netflix documentary. And Harry and Meghan definitely don't watch it, just a few episodes. Welcome to the Bin Factory, the Adams with Institute's podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI, and you've already been listening to the dulcet tones of my co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as our so far unintroduced special guest, uh, Michael Hendricks, who is the director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute, uh, normally based in New York. I assume you're still somewhere in New York, albeit not uh, working from home at this point. Uh, in this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the city after COVID, rent controls, and President Biden's COVID-19 economic relief plans. Don't worry, there will be no more Meghan and Harry on this podcast. COVID has sent millions fleeing from cities with an extraordinary rise of remote working, including ourselves at the moment and the people on this podcast. Now some are saying that mega cities like London and New York will never be the same again. And some of these changes that we've been seeing will end up being permanent. So I guess quite a big question to start, Michael, but uh, hopefully we can, we can all tackle it. Is the inevitable and unstoppable rise of cities finally coming to an end? Are we seeing the beginning of the end of cities? So before the pandemic, roughly 5% of Americans, again, this is just America that I'm talking about, roughly 5% of Americans worked full-time remotely. Remotely is kind of a squishy notion. People can be working remotely from home, from a coffee shop, whatever it may be, but nevertheless not in the office. During the pandemic, it's more like 50%, sometimes even higher. And that number has, even though it's declined by just a little bit, it still stayed relatively high between 40 and 50% of Americans working remotely, most of them kind of high-end workers, knowledge workers, you're not getting the uh, frontline, quote-unquote, essential workers working remotely, those in, say, grocery stores, the like. <clears throat> the question is, how many will stay remotely going forward? And as you said, what impact will that have on cities? I think we can say this. It will not be 40 to 50% of Americans working remotely post-pandemic. I think we can also say it'll be higher than 5%. And if it's higher than 5%, even just a small jump, moving from 5 to 10%, let's say, full-time remote, that can and I think will make a big difference in cities. And it's not just those who work full-time remotely. It's those who now all of a sudden maybe had gone from five days, full five days, or seven if you're the overachievers in New York City, going into the office. If they're now going in, say, three days a week, maybe one day a week, maybe just a couple times a month, all of a sudden, it's like you've drawn concentric circles out from a place like we'll pick on New York City. And with every additional day you can work remotely, 
maybe that's just a little bit further out that you think, well, maybe I could move. If you're, say, a millennial, you're uh, thinking about having kids, maybe you just had kids, maybe those kids are now looking at schooling in New York City and you're looking at the private school tuition and thinking, that is not possible. Then maybe you're, maybe moving outside of the city would make a big difference to you and your family. So I think here, here's, the, here's the real crux of it. Are cities going to die because of remote work? Not at all, right? Many cities that were high cost cities, I think they're the ones that are really gonna have to take a hard look because one, maybe somebody can move from New York to Nashville and work remotely. Number two, uh, maybe they'll move out to the suburbs and three, their central business district where they had so many of their workers that they depended upon for tax revenue. Many of them are not, we can say, going to be coming in at the rate or the size that they used to. And that is what we should really be concerned about. What is the future of the central business district, not just that of cities? Cities will be fine. Maybe their downtowns will look a little different. I think that's absolutely right, Michael. And the way I think about it is at the most dismissive of the idea of working from home continuing after the pandemic, people will say something like, well, maybe people just won't go in on Fridays. But even just thinking about this way, reducing um, the number of people in, in the city on average by 20%, which is you know, one day less a week, that's 20% less, less foot traffic for um restaurants that's 20% less for potentially people going to theaters after work or socializing and that's just one day a week and I suspect although we don't know exactly how this is going to completely plan out in the end there's probably going to be on average more than one day a week of people working from home and businesses are going to take advantage of this to reduce the cost of some of their commercial real estate and people are going to want to work from home I'm, I'm even finding this uh in Australia at the moment where effectively there are no COVID cases um my, my father, who runs a, a small, medium-sized business, keeps on telling me, Matthew, people are too scared to come back to the office. And then everyone kind of giggles at him and says, no, dad, the, the real reason people aren't coming back to the office is because they just don't want to. They just enjoy the, the flexibility of working from home. Um, and al- although things have picked up a bit in terms of people going back into cities to work, um, it seems like it is basically most businesses have decided that there will be some permanent flexibility for their employees and employees are demanding that. So you're going to see a lot more remote working. I think the ultimate power of cities is, is about more than just work, though. Um, it's about the fact that we socialize in cities, the fact that it's where we're entertained, it's where we interact with people. Um, and, and that's what's driven millions and millions of people, first from farms, from agriculture to towns, and then, then ultimately to cities, is that they're so much more, particularly for young people, purely as like a marriage market, the opportunity to meet more people. And all, that, all those kind of things are going to continue even if working from home makes the city slightly less attractive to live very centrally, and and particularly for people as they get into, I think, their 30s and, and 40s, um, wanting more space and, and not needing to be physically as close to the city. So I don't I don't think this means the city dies, um, and I think the city does keep in rising uh, for, for the reasons that purely people are more productive in cities, the kind of classic amalgamation story, which is every time a city doubles in size, um, people become 15% more productive, you require 15%. Uh, fewer roads and power lines, 15% more GDP per capita. It's because like things happen in cities and, and people are, particularly I think post-COVID, when they want to get back to things happening, to being with other people, they're going to be attracted to the cities. So I don't think cities go anywhere, but I think they do slightly change in character. That's right. If you look at surveys of remote work, I think the inevitable reaction you have is it's going to stick around. Workers are happier with it. 
their bosses are happier with it. And they all say, we're open to working remotely at least part of the time. In, in the States, it's anywhere between, you know, nearly three quarters say they want to go at least part-time remote. And these are the people who are often the highest spenders. They're paid a little bit more. They're people to do contribute uh, greatly to the tax base. Uh, and often, more often than not, uh, they will just, you know, in the case of New York, it's not so much that they're all going down to Florida. The numbers still, those people are, are relatively small, but they are doing certainly in great numbers is staying closer to home in a place like Brooklyn. You walk out in the streets in Brooklyn, the streets are full. These neighborhood centers, not the downtown central businesses, but the neighborhood centers are full of life right now. And that kind of redistribution, I think, is more likely what you're going to see within cities. Not people fleeing cities, but people reimagining what a city could be. I feel like we're, we're often a little too pessimistic about what the impact of remote work is likely to be on cities for some of the, the reasons we've mentioned. It's, it's true that you know, you're, you're not going to get the same level of human interactions that kind of feed into firm productivity and the the sort of agglomeration effects that drive cities as engines of growth. You're not going to have that kind of spontaneous chat with a colleague in the after hours in the office as easily. But what often gets neglected is that a different sort of agglomeration effect can replace that with remote work. Uh, if you look, for example, a lot of the reasons that, that people struggle to, to live or move in cities is because of um, housing restrictions, or, or if we look at the global picture, immigration restrictions. And Remote work kind of gives us an opportunity to surmount some of those problems, but still benefit from the sort of agglomeration effects that drive productivity and, and growth. Um, and I mean, you know, remote work is, is a way around a lot of these problems. So there's a kind of, I think, an overly pessimistic picture sometimes painted because we might have uh, remote work stay around at least in a small proportion more than it was Remote work is, 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 is a great signal of governance failures. Look at the corporate messaging for any company that said post-pandemic, we're going all in or partially in a remote work. Notice what they talk about as their reasons. Often it's things like high housing costs. They'll also mention congestion. Those are governance failures. So while they're, of course, acknowledging the remote work has been, a, I would say, a, a, a relatively remarkable success, the reasons for wanting to keep remote work up have to do with governance failures that policymakers should really take a hard look at. It's it's a it's a signal. It's a canary in the coal mine. Yeah, Mike, I was quite interested to read about some of your work in in City Journal, looking at the kind of migration from coastal cities to uh, lower cost cities like Austin, Phoenix, Nashville. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the comparison is in the UK, but there does seem to, have, to some extent, have been a, a depopulation of London and people moving to, to cities where they can potentially commute to London. But moving uh, to these those kind of cities is moving much further out um, and, and completely re- relocating your life. I was wondering if you'd be interested in, in what I asked you, what, what you think is kind of driving that move? You know, more often than not, it's things like housing costs where somebody can take their job in a place like San Francisco, move to Boise, and still earn something at least resembling their San Francisco salary, but get a house and a lifestyle far grander than they could afford in the Bay Area. And that's incredibly attractive. But note that many of these migrants 
Um, they're not great in number. It's not as if California suddenly emptied out, but they are influential. They are people who are, they, a lot of them have young families. They're very well educated. They pay a lot in taxes. That's kind of what's worrisome. And also they tend to be at the vanguard of migration. So it's not so much how many people move during a pandemic where people tend to be a little more risk averse, but who moves in their wake in the, in the years to come. And they're moving to places you know, not necessarily like Toledo, Ohio, or Gary, Indiana, places that are in the Rust Belt and have been downtrodden for the past handful of decades. No, they're moving to places that often, frankly, resemble the places that they've left. If they're in LA, maybe they move to Phoenix, another relatively dry, hot place with a similar culture. Boise, Idaho, if you drive through there, it looks a lot like some parts of the Bay Area, believe it or not. Um, Austin, Texas, similar culture to Silicon Valley in some respects. And so too, for someone moving from New York to Miami, which is often called New York's sixth borough, it's, it's some, it, they're moving to places that they are familiar with and that also I think critically have relatively thick labor markets. So if they have to jump from the remote job or maybe they've taken a new job in a place like Austin and something else comes up, they uh, they have the opportunity to jump elsewhere and still have opportunities, still have the salaries, still send their kids to a good school and still own their homes. I think those are the cities that are taking advantage of this migration. It's going to be the Austins, the Nashvilles, the Miamis. These are places that I think were already growing before and they're going to keep growing going ahead. Just a follow-up question since you mentioned um, Idaho. One of the, the kind of concerns I have is that a lot of the time you get kind of top-down attempts to recreate the magic of places like Silicon Valley where the, these kind of tech clusters and the, the agglomeration effects are strongest. The other ones that spring to mind are, say, Silicon Hill in D.C., um, I think Silicon Bay in, in Louisiana as well. Do you think that that, that kind of approach is, um, is kind of doomed to failure, trying to top-down recreate these sort of amazing uh, energetic spaces or is it something that the government can actually involve itself in? Attempts to recreate Silicon Valley from the top down almost entirely are doomed to failure unless a city already has the seeds of success on their own part. And a lot of it comes down, if you want to know the secret sauce of Silicon Valley, I think it really comes down to social capital and social networks. So social capital that allows for people and ideas from anywhere to be immediately integrated in the community. It's, it's not a very hierarchical uh, community and culture. Um, and then the social networks are very thick. Uh, there's, 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 uh, the, the nodes in the network are willing to connect people, money, ideas. And that's worked. The places that are also working out, uh, like in Austin, don't have entirely the same culture, but they're similar enough. Often a clue as to whether they have uh, cultures that could follow in the footsteps of a place like the Bay Area or Silicon Valley is whether or not they have some kind of creative industry. Richard Florida was not entirely wrong when he wrote in The Rise of the Creative Class that things like music creativity, uh, which is what you see in Austin and Nashville, uh, Boulder, Colorado, also with its investments in um, High tech, rocketry, um, the 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 hard sciences—you know those sort of basic ingredients for success 
mixed with a relatively open dynamic culture and thick, vibrant network of contacts that can incorporate people from wherever they are, those sort of places, if mayors decide to lead and try to create a thriving digital economy, those are the places already primed for success and the mayors are likely to lead. I would say it's a little harder in places like DC that are primed more to yield someone's share of government largesse than to create the next startup. It's a little harder there. I think it's quite an interesting point about the kind of culture of a city and the, the symbiotic nature between what is a, a thriving kind of entertainment and creative space and a kind of thriving market entrepreneurial space. Um, and often those are perceived, I think, to be in conflict. If you think about kind of the grungy parts of London in, in Shoreditch and the kind of coolness um, there. Your and then, favorite part. Your favorite part, Daniel, where, where, all, where all the cool kids like you hang out. I did used to live in Spitterfields. Actually, it wasn't wasn't too far from from Shoreditch. I occasionally, walk up walk up there and feel you know underdressed or overdressed or whatever it was. Um, but then, but then that kind of world in in Shoreditch is actually pretty close to the city of London, uh, and that's where you have this great financial um, capacity that effectively funds that creative world. Um, they, they're not willing to admit it on either side necessarily. Uh, particularly the creatives don't want to be known to or, or really appreciate the fact that they're in London partly because it is such a um, place of, of finance and capital that they can, can fund their lifestyles as well. Um, and I think that's probably another reason why cities don't die, but potentially different cities come and go over time. Yeah, one, one of the other kind of cultural aspects that I find really interesting that, that does help to create successful cities is very high velocity labor markets uh, and this is something that doesn't tend to happen where we work in, in Westminster where a civil service job is a job for life but if you look at um, the Bay Area as a classic example um, or Shoreditch in fact plenty of, of areas in Shoreditch you have this this kind of culture of, of turning over and moving from different jobs and you're able to share that that kind of transferable knowledge um, between those jobs and get those sort of agglomeration effects but we've spoken already about some of the reasons why cities um, can struggle in the the case of um, remote work being quite a good symptom of that, things like overcrowding, congestion, high housing costs. Um, I guess for you, Michael, are you, broadly speaking, optimistic uh, that, that this will change or is in fact changing, at least in the US picture? Or do you think that this is something that actually remote work is just kind of a way around it um, and we're not actually going to see the sort of policy change we need to, to get around it properly? Policy change certainly doesn't happen overnight, and we're still very much in a crisis mindset. So if we're talking about fundamental rethinks in urban policy, I don't think that we should be looking for that in 2020 or 2021. But I do see green shoots of opportunity. You know, I was just I just wrote a piece on Boulder, Colorado, one of the uh, priciest housing markets in America, otherwise also very prosperous too. And you know, talking with some of the locals there now, they say. Over the course of the pandemic, something ineffable has shifted. Something has changed in our conversation about housing. We recognize we can't take growth for granted. We recognize how vulnerable our seniors are. If we aren't careful about our high housing costs, we're just going to become an Aspen, Colorado-like retirement community for the uber-wealthy. We've got to change it. And there's also been a conversation around overcrowding. And in New York and San Francisco, two of the hardest-hit cities from out-migration and from covid uh, over the past year, saying, you know, that kind of overcrowding, lots of roommates forced to cram together because they have no other option, that helps spread COVID-19 and certainly does not help people to live, 
you know, fully robust lives. And so I think there is something beginning to change. And, you know, I, I, I find it hopeful. I, I think that, I think that we're seeing much more care and attention paid to urban policy. The more people can pay attention to that, the more that people like me and some of my friends here in urban policy in the States will just say, yes, great. Now that you're here, let's talk about housing. <laughs> let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about economic development policy. Well, on the subject of, um, of housing disasters uh, across the world, I think it's time to move on to the next section of our podcast on Berlin's rent controls and what their effects would be. The answer, I imagine, is on a postcard. Berlin is one year into a rent control experiment with rents capped for older apartments. This has been widely marked as a triumph by the advocates of rent control and a model to be followed elsewhere. However, new analysis from the Munich's IFO Institute paints quite an ugly picture. Daniel, what have we learned from rent control in Berlin? Sure. So we had a year ago the, the rent cap uh, coming into effect on the back of a coalition of left-leaning parties that govern the city in Berlin. Um, and I was just reading the other day a fantastic Guardian article published at the time saying that the, the rent cap offers a new way of thinking about Britain's housing crisis, and we should perhaps learn from uh, from Berlin's efforts. The problem is, as you mentioned, this this new study that's come out. Um, it looked at what happened for for all apartments built before 2014. The Berlin government uh, froze rents at whatever they were in 2019, um, and there was also this this kind of interesting and uh, poorly defined power that any tenants uh, in those units could force their landlords to lower rents that they deemed to be excessive. Now, obviously, it's not just whether you can't just walk up to a city official and say, oh, actually, you know, I think my rent's a bit high and they'll lower it for you. There was some process to it, but still uh, a slightly worrying kind of way of doing things. Uh, and the results, uh, according to this study, um, are unsurprising for anyone who is even a little familiar with the, the general economic consensus on rent controls and their effects, especially this kind of egregious type of rent control. You had the unregulated sector of, um, of Berlin's apartments, rents rising extremely fast. But the key thing here was that the supply of new housing absolutely plummeted. Um, and even in the, the unregulated sector, the houses um, built after that date, there just wasn't uh, enough growth to, to kind of get this back up. So what you're seeing is that the incumbent tenants in the city um, have undoubtedly benefited. The problem is that anyone who wants to move to Berlin, whether um, they be, for example, a young person looking to make their way in the city, they might be an immigrant who wants to um, move to one of Germany's biggest cities. They're the ones that have to take the, the brunt of this through much lower availability um, and much higher rental costs. So things have not gone particularly well, certainly. So, Michael, this is kind of a pretty typical story of rent control, isn't it? We kind of do the same thing again and again and again and expect a different result. Uh, it seems like inevitably, if you cut rents, people are going to put their existing properties onto the private market, and they're not going to want to build new homes in the threat, in the knowledge that they could potentially not have um, any meaningful return from it in future. Yeah, I mean, this this is what we've seen in basically every instance of rent control across the world. It's maybe the incumbent tenants who win out for a time, and everyone else, the the young, the newcomers, they're the ones who lose out and they lose out now and they'll keep losing out and it'll just get worse and worse and worse. Right now you just kind of have this bifurcated market in Berlin between the regulated 
portion of the market and the unregulated portion. And, you know, both are harmed. Uh, but I think it's really been most devastating to the market oriented side, uh, where even that's kind of frozen up. And even even for those who are ostensibly the ones benefiting from rent control in Berlin, what, what you're finding is that for regulated apartments, um, once someone moves out, the owner of that property will do everything that they can to sell that property. They're not going to find someone else to want to rent it under rent control. And so over time, there's even there's even going to be fewer beneficiaries of this rent control scheme. Uh, you know, and I think this is why you've seen in in many places, including in the states that have instituted rent control, Cambridge, Massachusetts being just one example, um, they've often tried to move away from it over time. And, you know, I just, I think that we need to be learning the lessons of how rent control just consistently makes it harder to find an apartment, uh, does not increase diversity in any way, degrades the quality of, of housing, and splits it into a market for winners and losers if it was if that was the problem before, this makes it even worse. Yeah, and that point about the quality of, of existing housing going down, I think, is one that's often missed because you tend to get when when people are calling for rent controls and when they advocate for them, the, the justification that well, it you know you, we want people to have affordable and high quality or safe housing. The, the problem here is that again, for those people in rent control departments, property developers, landlords, in this case are simply not going to have the same incentive to invest in those properties. What that translates into in terms of people's real lives is, you know, that broken fridge that is going to take too long to get fixed or a damp wall that's not going to be uh, repaired quite as quickly, a boiler that you might have that's on the brink of, uh, of collapse. These sort of things, there's just no incentive anymore for, for landlords, or there's very little incentive for landlords to improve their property. So they're not just being harmed in terms of, well, you know, someone living in a rent-controlled property, if they ever want to move, then they can't because everywhere else is now really, really expensive. They're also having a worse place to live while they're there initially in, in that sort of, uh, in that apartment. To, to borrow a quote from uh, the, the classic um, Swedish economist, Asa Limbeck, who said, rent control appears to be the most efficient technique presently known to destroy a city except for bombing. And I guess that kind of brings me to my next thought, which is, despite the fact that we consistently know rent control fails, it's just the same result every single time. Um, Michael, why do you think it still has this kind of strong political appeal? I mean, as we're having this discussion, we've got a a forthcoming London mayor election. Uh, Sadiq Khan has has used Berlin as a shining light, as an example on which to base London's rent control policies, because apparently it can be different if it's just done differently this time. Why do we end up in such a reliving history and reliving the same failure? Probably for three reasons. One, it makes intuitive sense. Rent control does. Two, rent control works. And I mean this in the most limited sense. It literally controls rents. It says, it does what it says on the tin, right? Uh, And then also three, I think, Politics tends to ebb and flow over the generations and in particularly populist moments, uh, rent control has this kind of baseline appeal. And so, so, so just in terms of like whether it, wor- you know, wh- whether it uh, accomplishes what it says it will do, um, you know, again, as we've noted, you know, if you do live in a rent controlled apartment, 
you will find your rent controlled and that feels attractive. And amidst high housing costs, it seems like the, the, the quickest way to get a quote unquote solution. And then you just get to outsource the problem to someone else and to the future. And we don't live in the future. And if we are the beneficiaries, what are we to care? And third, like, you know, the people who we tend to think may get harmed by rent control, we often think is being the plutocrats or the big landlords. I mean, of course, the reality is, is that it tends to be um, minorities, immigrants, uh, immigrants in particular have been harmed in Stockholm's example of rent control. They find it very hard, if not impossible, to find decent housing. Um, those are the newcomers. Those are the outsiders. But nevertheless, we think it's going to be the plutocrats who are going to be hurt. In truth, you know, if you're a small landlord, you just can't navigate the costs and the regulatory difficulties under a rent control scheme or even stringent rent regulation more broadly. And so you just end up getting much bigger firms that can operate and also government itself. And over time, everybody is harmed. But for right now, politically, it seems to make a lot of sense. The thing that I've always found astounding for the UK, at least, is that rent controls don't just enjoy a huge majority in terms of public support in all the kind of recent polling over the past few years. I'm sure that is unchanged from decades ago. It's been consistently popular policy, but also that it has support across all the major parties. So conservative voters aren't particularly less likely to, to say that they oppose rent controls when compared to Labour voters. Um, there's a little difference between young and old people as well. If you look at kind of demographic split, it tends to be similar levels of support for young and old people. And for me, it's it's not even a question of, well, you've got this concentrated benefit and diffused cost, which is you know the classic explanation for why there's public support for certain policies there it's just that the costs aren't very easy to understand and they're a little bit down the road um that they don't immediately you know come to mind what comes to mind is that for anyone who is renting oh my rent's going to go down as you say michael you know it's a perfectly rational and self-interested thing to do for the people who are going to be affected by it at least in the short term obviously they're going to be um screwed over in down the line by low quality housing for themselves and if they ever want to move um which Shockingly enough, some people do want to move to different places to live at some point in their lives. Uh, they're going to find out very quickly that actually this is, this is not a good economic policy. And by the way, this is something that we see in the housing discussion broadly. You know, if you're trying as a yes in my backyard type to convince somebody that more housing supply in your neighborhood is actually good, and not just actually good uh, for the neighborhood character, but will also over time, if you allow enough of it, actually reduce price pressures and rent pressures. Um, it's actually very hard, even though all the studies back you up on this, it's a very hard point to make when someone just walks along the street, sees new development, sees prices going up and think, ah, it's the new development that's causing prices to go up. Yeah, it's that, that myth that, that luxury development pushes up the price of housing because we have nice new housing rather than having a downstream effect of lowering the price of housing overall in the market. I did have this quite extraordinary moment towards uh, the start of not last year, but the year before when I moved to the UK, I wrote an article about uh, Sadiq Khan and his economic illiteracy was my, my favorite term at, at that point about rent control. Um, and, and I wrote about how difficult it would have been for me as a, a new arrival into London to find a home if there was rent control. And I, and I 
ultimately, you, know, you do pay a lot for rent in London and it's, it's kind of the, the cost of doing business. But if I didn't have the opportunity to pay a lot, I would have probably been stuck in an Airbnb for a long time and, and paying even more. I remember um, a, a few weeks later, I have to go have a meeting to get my national insurance number. Now, it is in itself outrageous that I have to go to a um, Department of Work and Pensions Job Center to get a national insurance number to, to pay tax. But that's beside the point. In this in this interview you have with the person you're kind of discussing that you've come to the UK to work and you're a legitimate, you know, real person. Um, this woman, lovely, very nice woman, starts, you know, asking, you know, what do I do? And I'm thinking, oh, I guess I've got to say for the interview. And then she's like, speaking to my priest, and he and he told me that uh, rent control is a really good idea. I'm like, mm, I don't know, it doesn't. And I, my response doesn't work very well in Stockholm. So she's like, mm, yeah, I think we still need rent. Control. Control. I think I think you're right. It is I didn't want to get into an argument with the person I needed to approve my uh, national insurance number, but I think it does speak to that difficulty, that kind of like instinct that we need to control the rents, and, and that's the, the solution to our housing woes. The other worry here is that it's not just the rent controls themselves that disincentivize any sort of investment or new house building. It's the fact that once you have rent controls as a policy tool. And once they're established, then that introduces a lot of uncertainty about what politicians are going to do with rent controls in the next election, for example. It becomes more of a political football. And if you imagine kind of politics, if that was a game and politicians competing saying, oh, you know, I'm going to reduce the price of bread by 50p at the next election. Another one comes along and says, I'm going to reduce it by 60p. You're going to have even more uncertainty than the policy itself actually causes. Um, and in the case of Berlin, you've got a lot of uncertainty created in that Germany's constitutional court is, uh, at least later this year, I think, going to decide whether the rent controls in Berlin are even legal in the first place. So what if, say, for example, they do end up repealing this sort of legislation, you're going to have a bunch of tenants that were very happy and, and did their financial planning around um, temporarily reduced rents, uh, and then they're going to get hit by a huge kind of rent increase as a result of that. So you, you've just got uncertainty everywhere if you want to introduce this policy and you can't make it a political football. Well, and of course, anyone who's familiar with things like farmer subsidies knows that once you provide some sort of attractive giveaway and, and especially one that increases the size of the giveaway as time goes by, you know, as in this case for rent control, the difference between market rents and what you're actually paying tends to, especially in high demand cities, increase, you know, that all of a sudden the stakes get higher and there's a very loud vocal group who are many times more likely to turn out in elections because they're motivated to do so. They have a stake in the battle and they're going to tell you that they have a stake in that battle and they're going to vote for you or not based on where you come down on this question of a subsidy. And the more you do that, and the more you bring people into that subsidy program, in this case, rent control, the harder it is to get rid of it. Uh, just a, a closing thought, having thought about rent controls and their political appeal, maybe we should start selling planning reform as just a long-term version of rent control. I think that might be quite a politically uh, savvy way of doing it. I like this market-oriented rent control. <laughs> Uh, if you increase supply and you move the supply curve this way, that leads to prices to go down uh, as the, the, the classic. Um, I just want to draw it. To... All natural organic affordability. <laughs> I like it. There I like go. it. That'll definitely work in, in our inner cities. Well, on that note, uh, let's move on to a bit of a, a chat about the latest on American politics. 
the United States looks set to pass its third major spending package of the pandemic to the tune of nearly $2 trillion, uh, $1.9 trillion to be exact. The so-called American Rescue Plan uh, has been approved by the Senate, although not without some disappointments for the Democrats. We'll maybe get on to some of those later. Uh, and it's expected to clear a vote in the House of Representatives shortly, although at the time of recording, has it? It's going to go to Joe Biden's desk to sign on Friday. There we go. Very, very close indeed. Um, so I guess the first question is, we, we know it's a stimulus package. We know it's an awful lot of money. Uh, what does it contain? What does it involve? Maybe you, Michael, first. Sure. So as you noted, this is nearly $2 trillion in spending. Uh, you know, just to give you a sense of scale with this uh with this aid package included, uh, America will have spent some $5.5 trillion in less than 12 months. That's more than what America spent fighting World War II. And this is just a colossal number. Uh, of that, in particular, Biden's aid plan, just 1% goes toward vaccination. So I think we have to be clear here, this is build a COVID relief bill um, but it is not targeted at COVID-19. Uh, if you look more broadly at public health spending, maybe it's upwards of 5% of this bill goes toward public health. But what it's really about is getting money into people's hands and money into government hands, in particular states and localities. So for states and localities in particular, uh, it's, we're talking some $350 billion. Uh, on top of that, we have another $130 billion for reopening K-12 schools, $25 billion for public housing, $20 billion for public transit. You know, all in, America's cities and states are now going to see a windfall north of half a trillion dollars, which means that whatever budget crisis that they were looking at uh, during the pandemic will now be not only wiped away, but they'll, they'll be flushed with cash. And the question that a lot of people are asking is, was that even necessary? And what are the hidden costs and downsides that will come with the spending? It, it does seem like a quite extraordinary amount of money. And it really does make you think and just kind of shake your head saying, this is debt. This somebody has to, you know, somebody has to pay for this eventually. And it is a huge amount of borrowing. And uh, we've been pretty sympathetic to the idea that it is necessary to borrow, to fight the pandemic, to keep businesses alive. But I think this is a kind of, next stage in terms of spending it's it's not giving people um increased unemployment support or, or things like that in terms of the focus it's really at the end of the pandemic as we're um already vaccinating people and giving a kind of keynesian style stimulus and in terms of whether it's not necessary i mean there's some estimates suggest that the the total kind of economic output gap in in the us is something like 330 billion at the moment so you you put you've got an output gap of 330 billion and you're putting 1.9 trillion in stimulus you've also got on top of that uh, 1.8 trillion of, of excess savings and more savings than you normally have so people have a lot of money that they could potentially go out there and spend shortly so you add all that up you've got almost kind of 4 trillion being um, ready to spend in the economy and that that creates a kind of huge inflationary risk um, when you've got that much cash chasing, not that much increased output, it's not clear to me that there's anything in this in the stimulus bill that will fundamentally increase the supply side of the economy. Um, and then you also risk kind of fueling financial markets and financial bubbles. So this could very much backfire, particularly if it, it lets the inflation 
cat out of out of the bag. And that's actually where it's quite relevant for UK listeners. Um, because what could start in the US in terms of an inflationary push-up will have a global impact on bond markets. You've already seen that um, in the US 10-year market um, bond. And for every, was it some like one percentage point increase um, in the, the cost of, of interest rates on UK debts, another 25 billion pounds uh, worth of cost to government just in to fulfill the current debt burden. So this, this could have a, a kind of huge global ramifications if, if it all goes wrong. Uh, hopefully it doesn't, but um, that, that's the kind of downside risk here. I think, Matthew, you're absolutely right on the, the worries of there not really being anything supply side in, in this. You've got the bill explicitly barring states from cutting taxes. Um, states shall not use the funds to directly or indirectly offset any reduction in net tax revenue. And that's such a contrast um, to, well, in some ways, at least to the most recent UK budget we've seen, where the Chancellor explicitly announced this uh, this super deduction in an attempt to get the economy going and, and get um, investment and business investment flowing again. I guess the, the question that uh, has kind of graced a lot of commentators' lips recently on this is whether or not it's a supposed to be a temporary measure, something that will not last, or actually it's a more permanent and fundamental shift in the role of the US government, a kind of New Deal or Lyndon B. Johnson Great Society reform. Uh, Do you think this is likely to be something merely temporary, or am I being uh, fatally optimistic, perhaps? Most immediately, there are parts of the bill that will continue even after the spending taps from the bill itself run out. So, for instance... Uh, there's now going to be direct payments made on a monthly basis to parents with children, and this is an incentive. This is a scheme that uh, people on both left and right have been relatively friendly toward. Um, there's a lot of good arguments out there that, with um, declining fertility rates in the West, particularly in America, that there's there's something not bad. Plus, with increasing childcare costs, that there's not something particularly bad about giving money directly to parents to help allay those costs and also just make it even maybe attractive to have uh, a child or more children. Um, that spending will continue. Even after this bill is spent out, that spending will continue. There's other you know, so-called extenders like that. That means we're actually going to be on the hook at the federal level for trillions more to come over the years. And also states and localities will make uh, spending promises based on this money that they'll be hard pressed to stop once the quote unquote crisis is, is over. But I think there's a kind of a bigger point here that we do seem to have undergone a shift in how we approach uh, the proper role for government and what spending can do. And, you know, surprisingly, this was a Republican president who I think kicked that off when he sent checks directly to people, Donald J. Trump with his signature on the check directly to people. And it made people concretely better off. People, you know, spent the money if they needed to spend it. They saved the money, in fact, in in huge uh, droves. And, you know, it seemed to have worked. And it was instantaneous money to people. And all of a sudden, people thought, wow, government can actually change my life in very immediate, concrete ways, unemployment worked fantastically well once we worked at the kinks at the state level. Um, And so people think actually maybe state spending in big ways and immediate ways can actually be good. The only question is, 
are we burying risks? Are we putting off problems that will come back to bite us? And I fear we have. Um, I think that there's a fair argument that if we're going to learn any lessons from, from the past year, it should be that schemes like unemployment insurance are actually a good thing. If we can have government take some risks off the table, it could hopefully encourage people to take other risks into their lives, like starting a new business, which, by the way, business formation rates have skyrocketed in America over the past year. That perhaps is a good thing. But once you just start sending money directly to people, once you make unemployment insurance so profitable that you don't even have to find a job, well, then you're making people de-risk their lives. You're making people uh, less likely to want to do big, bold things. And that over time, I think, will be harmful to the dynamism of America. And uh, that is even before you get to the concerns over things like inflation or debt, which I think are very, very real. Well, there's nothing to make people more supportive, more of an interventionist government than a big fat check uh, written by said government itself. Um, and even if it doesn't have, as I'm led to believe, President Biden's name on it this time, I, I believe there was some, some wrangling uh, that went on about that. So apart from the kind of public appetite for this, which I think we've probably established is quite high at the moment, at least when it comes to polling. Um, what about the, the two major parties? Obviously, you know, Democrats going to be very supportive of this. Has there been much effective opposition from Republicans? Have they put forward any alternative? There's been opposition from Republicans. Whether it's been effective is another question. So uh, Democrats and Republicans have marched um, rank and file. Uh, one side, the Democrats very much in favor, uh, almost uniformly, with I think one exception in, in the House most recently, uh, uniformly in favor of what President Biden is, is proposing in this COVID relief bill. And Republicans saying no way. Every single senator and representative saying no, absolutely not. We do not support this. But Michael, isn't it a matter of extent, though? Don't the Republicans also support a stimulus bill, but just a smaller stimulus bill? Or have they now kind of changed their position? That's right. The, 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 I think it's fair to say that this has more to do with partisanship than principle. You know, when President Trump was in office, Republicans seemed quite willing to endorse large stimulus bills uh, in, in lots of federal debt. Now, suddenly, it seems as if Republicans have rediscovered their old Tea Party uh, ways of being thrifty and trying to shrink the size of government uh, down so it can be small enough to drown in a bathtub, as one tax fighter, Grover Norquist, has, has long argued in Washington, D.C., you know, that that is suddenly what they've rediscovered. I would argue that the tenor has changed, though. So first of all, Republicans have gotten a taste of big government and big spending for their own purposes, and it's been quite attractive to them. The second is that um, the culture wars are this kind of all-powerful force now in politics. So even when you see Republicans criticizing the spending, of which I, I've certainly been one of them, uh, I think there's been many others who've gone a step further and said, look, this is, this is spending that seems to benefit coastal states and elite workers uh, more so than the heartland and more so than the working class Americans who form now much of the base of the Republican Party. And 
to some degree, they, they do have a point. Uh, a place like California is now awash with cash. Governor Gavin Newsom uh, is is rolling out six, his own $600 stimulus checks and, um, and proposing the biggest spending package in the state's history. And so I think people in the heartland who are struggling to find work right now, and there are many, many people who have just completely dropped out of the labor market, says maybe this isn't fair. Maybe this is part of the cultural fight that Donald Trump was, you know, for better or worse, engaging with us uh, uh, on our side. And so I think that's what we're really going to see. We're going to see a return to kind of the thrifty ways on the right, but it's going to have a different tenor than what it was under President Obama. It's going to be more about culture war and more about populism. And they'll have some good cause for that. Yeah, but it was kind of just to say, Michael, and I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts in terms of where the Republican Party is going now in, in the post-Trump, but we're, we don't really seem to be fully post-Trump. I was keeping kind of a, an eye on the side at, to, to Trump's appearance at CPAC, uh, where it's something like 55% of CPAC delegates still wanted Trump to be the candidate uh, at the, the next um, presidential election. And that was perhaps even a surprise that it wasn't actually even higher than 55%. Um, governor Newsom being uh, number two, the, the Florida governor, because it was a, a CPAC held in Florida. Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. Oh, sorry, DeSantis. Sorry, I've, I've lost my lost my governors. Um, it, it does seem like the, the Republican Party is, at least from a distance, is very much still, still captured by Trump. And then there's that question of, is CPAC representing the Republican Party, uh, which is kind of hard to answer until we know what the Republican Party is going to become in a couple of years' time. Uh, but, but where do you think that the Republican Party is, is going? Is it, are we going to see more of Trump? We're going to see Trump himself, we're going to see the kind of likes of, of Josh Hawley, uh, the kind of Trump light figures, um, Ted Cruz, the Trump wannabe figures, or, or we're going to see kind of a, a potential return to more traditional republicanism on the fiscal grounds, or is that just hopeful thinking? You know, whether or not President Trump, former President Trump, wants to be the nominee next time around really is up to him. And he is the prohibitive front runner at this point. Now, if you look back on polls and other contested primaries in prior decades, and you looked at the people who were front runners at this point in time in the election cycle, you'd find people who, quite frankly, you would have forgotten of, I would have forgotten of, and uh, who ultimately didn't go anywhere. If anybody r- remembers this, for instance, uh, at one point in time, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, was the prohibitive favorite to be the Republican <laughs> nominee and indeed president. Things have changed. So a lot can happen. A lot of this is up to President Trump. I think what we see for sure, though, is that there is a large part of the Republican Party that has a decidedly oppositional stance um, that is about owning the libs, drinking liberal tears and taste and and, and and enjoying their sweet, sweet taste. And, and and that is a that is attractive and and in some respects they see President Trump as being the way in which you own the libs. So it's not just about lib owning, it's supporting President Trump, therefore you own the libs. And that is very, very hard to compete against if you are trying to run in President Trump's own populist lane. Um, I do think, though, that we are going to see a lot of competition with President Trump. And I think that uh, however Joe Biden leads, time will tell, will inevitably shape the kind of Republican Party that we find three years from now when 
a primary is now, God forbid, back on the front pages. And that's really going to be interesting. Will we find a kind of post-Trump party that not only has a strong oppositional stance, but also has a strong sense of what it's for and what it's proposing? And if anything, this is going to be the most interesting thing that we'll be all watching in the next handful of years. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we're quite there yet with the, uh, I think, 600 billion alternative proposal, the stimulus from the Republicans. But one thing that gives me a kind of perverse course for optimism is that if we continue to see this sort of extremely high spending, um, very happy with debt Biden agenda, and it turns out that's not just a, a temporary kind of pandemic response measure, then there is an opportunity for, for the GOP to really start to shape themselves as that oppositional party defined by opposition to big government spending um, and, and lower taxes. So kind of uh, an unintended consequence of something that's quite bad and that we, you know, to some extent at least need um, some of this response in government spending as a result of the pandemic fallout. It does mean that it gives the Republicans an opportunity to, to pivot away from the sort of culture wars, owning the lib stuff that uh, ultimately isn't really for anything. It just, uh, as you say, quite oppositional. Can I can I um, challenge you, Michael, for an update on on Governor Como? Uh, talking of d- different governors, um, I've been kind of watching with a, a little bit of um, awe and a little bit of kind of great concern of, about Governor Como's fall from grace. Because of course, I remember about twelve months ago that they used to live broadcast even into the UK on Sky News his New York uh, press conferences, and he was this absolute darling. Um, of the the anti-Trump resistance, but it turns out he, he wasn't quite all he was made out to be, was he? No, I, just a year ago and, and in the months afterward during the COVID-19 pandemic, not only was uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York a star, um, he was even uh, being labeled with hashtag Cuomosexual on Twitter, where people would just identify themselves with with his inherent attractiveness and, and his strong leadership. Oh, High praise that indeed. now has a much darker tone to it. Uh, now that we've seen at this point, I believe, six women in Governor Cuomo's orbit who've come out and said that he's been in some way inappropriate, often sexually so, uh, to them in their presence um, in ways that made them feel very uncomfortable. And uh, they now feel the freedom to speak. You know, the thing that you have to keep in mind in in Albany, uh, New York's capital, is that people fear Governor Cuomo. If you step out and you oppose him in any way, even in small ways, he will go out of his way to crush you, annihilate you. He will tell you that he's going to do that. He will do it. And he will enjoy every bit of it. And he's destroyed many careers and kept good on that promise. Now, all of a sudden, the knives are out. This person who was not only indefensible in the uh, in the polls, but even won an Emmy for his briefings, now all of a sudden, like Icarus, is coming back down to earth, and really his future is in the hands of the Attorney General uh, Tish James in New York, who now got the right to do an independent investigation. Although it's always questionable just how independent investigations are in the tiny, tiny uh, insular town of Albany. But an independent investigation into these allegations of Governor Cuomo, and if the findings are devastating, there'll be just almost insurmountable pressure for him to step down. In the meantime, I think he's taking a cue from 
Governor Northam, who had uh, kind of a racist controversy not too long ago. Um, and he learned, uh, Governor Northam in Virginia learned that if you just hold out and you just stick around, these controversies tend to just blow by. And I think that's really what Governor Cuomo is trying to do. Just hold on to power long enough for the crisis to go by and then look ahead to a fourth term. <laughs> the jury is out whether he'll actually be able to get that. And of course, the other um, huge part of this controversy is the fact that while he was doing these press conferences, while he was writing this celebratory book, um, the state was fundamentally lying about the number of deaths in care homes. And there's this extraordinary story. It's not actually too similar to what happened in in the UK, which is you've got COVID-positive patients being discharged to care homes. So it's the most at-risk people being discharged to the most at-risk setting to then spread COVID around other vulnerable people. Um, and you had a, a, actually a basically a lie in a report that's come out that they manipulated the numbers under Governor Cuomo's pressure about how many deaths um, that there actually were in care homes in order to hide the information from the Department of Justice, um, which potentially could be unlawful in itself. So you've, you've got this kind of both the kind of personal behavior of Como, but also the, the revealing of the facts of his uh, behavior as a leader during COVID is, was not all that it was cracked up to be. That's right. Turns out thousands more died in nursing homes of COVID-19 in New York than we ever knew. We knew it was a lot. We didn't know just how bad it was. And yes, Governor Cuomo and his staff did do whatever they could to hide these devastating numbers until it came out. And look, you know, the polling on Governor Cuomo was not really affected that much by these nursing home revelations. It was Republicans who really were paying attention to it, and it really confirmed their worst fears and suspicions of Governor Cuomo. But I think in, when we look back on this period, it'll really be the first chink in the armor of someone who is otherwise the strongest governor in America. And that first chink in the armor proved maybe a devastating opening for some of these blows, the, the sexual harassment allegations, and we'll really see if it was the first blow to his downfall. Well, Michael, thank you very much for, for that update, and, and thank you so much for joining us on the Alice with Institute's Pin Factory podcast. My name is Matthew Lester. I'm the head of research at the AASI. Um, you've, been, you've been listening to Daniel Pryor, who's uh, my co-host and our head of programs, as well as our special guest, Michael Hendrick, the director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. If you've been enjoying the podcast, do the usual, hit the subscribe button, give us a five-star rating. Uh, If you're not enjoying it, please do give us any feedback and we're always happy to learn from you and, and hear your ideas. 